Well, as we've already acknowledged, today is the first Sunday in Advent, and it's the Sunday of expectation. And the expectation candle is burning in front of us. Thank you, Tom and Betty. After listening to you all read, I was ready to go home. Really, thank you all so much. And so on our minds this morning are expectations. How, how many do you have? How many expectations do you have? Most of us have a lot of expectations. And the problem with expectations is that very often in our lives, they aren't satisfied. They're not fulfilled. They're not realized. And that's often because you and I have wrong expectations. They don't have a reasonable foundation. They, they don't have a good reason or basis to expect that they will actually happen. And so it's often said that expectations are premeditated resentments. Expectations are premeditated resentments. Let me give you an example of a, a, a right expectation. Past experience tells me that because my wife, Kathy, loves me, if she gets to the kitchen first in the morning, she will make the coffee that we both really enjoy, the coffee that makes us both very happy. Now, that's a right expectation based on who Kathy is, her character, and past experience. If I get to the kitchen first because I love Kathy, then I make the coffee that we both so enjoy, and, and that's a right expectation based on who I am and past experience. Now, if Kathy and I both lie in bed in the morning and expect the French press coffee to make itself, guess what? <laughs> Wrong expectation. We will be disappointed in that expectation. It has no basis in reality. We have no reason to believe that it will happen, just as we have no reason to believe that one of our adult children would ever make coffee for us. But that's a different story. Right expectations, wrong expectations. Right expectations build us up, give us hope. Wrong expectations often destroy. Destroy relationships. Friends who won't be for one another what each friend expects. Spouses who won't be for each other what each spouse expects. Bosses, coworkers, whatever. Wrong expectations can ruin relationships. And so what unmet what unmet expectations of others frustrate you or disappoint you? And on what do you base those expectations? And what about Jesus? What expectations do you have of him? What expectations that you have of Jesus have left you frustrated or disappointed? On what do you found the expectations you have for Jesus. Are they right expectations or are they wrong ones? On this expectation Advent Sunday, we must have right relation, right expectations of Christ because right expectations are going to fill our lives with joy and peace and hope. Would you like a little of that in your life? Then let's expect rightly from Jesus. So toward that end, if you would take out your Bibles and turn to, in the New Testament, to Colossians chapter 1, you'll find that on page 983 in the Pew Bible, page 983 in the Pew Bible, Colossians chapter 1. 
When you found your place, let's stand together so we can hear read together the word of the living God. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, this is the word of the Lord. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, always, always we are so thankful for your word. Lord, that you're the kind of God that would speak to us, and that the word you speak would be truth, consistent, unchanging, never chaotic. Because of that, Lord, we can build our lives on your truth. And so that's what we want to do this morning as we come to your word. Lord, we want to be changed by it. We want to use it as a firm foundation upon which we stand so that our lives can be lived rightly, so we can expect right things from you. So our lives will be filled with the joy and the hope and the peace that come from that so that frustration and disappointment will be banned because we know you and perceive you rightly through the truth of your word and the power of your spirit. So do that innocent through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to begin this morning with uh, a disclaimer, and the disclaimer is this. The, these verses, if you didn't notice as I read them, are deep, deep waters. They are like the deluge, the, the great flood in the Old Testament, where the foundations of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven opened and the rain fell and the earth was flooded. I feel like this passage this morning is like a theological deluge. Every verse, every phrase of this passage deserves an entire sermon. Each phrase deserves that you and I just sit and, and contemplate the richness of it and the implication of it. And we're not even going to get to each phrase this morning. So I'm just saying up front, we're going to get about knee-deep in a passage that deserves that we be completely awash in it, over our heads, in the amazing truth of it. So, So that's the disclaimer. Now, let's get to the passage. This passage enables us to have right expectations that don't lead to frustration and ruin relationships because they are based on who Christ is and not who we imagine that he should be. This passage puts 
before us so beautifully and so profoundly who Christ is. Christ, who like God in the Old Testament at the burning bush proclaimed, I am, so Jesus is, I am as well. I am. And all of our expectations, all of our expectations flow from who I am is. So let's look at these verses. And there are five identity statements that describe for us who Jesus, I am, really is. The first identity statement is in verse 15. Clearly it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now the God who is unseen, the God who commanded in the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under this earth. That God chose to become the seen God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the human Jesus that people saw and heard and touched, he is the image of God. He is God. He's not just a good person. He's not just a moral man. He's not just a good teacher. He is God. Look in verse 19. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That brings to our mind the image of Solomon's temple, the day it was completed, the day it was dedicated to the Lord. Second Chronicles tells us that fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The temple couldn't get any fuller. Because it was so filled with the glory of the Lord, nothing else could enter it. So full was it of the glory of God, saturated with the fullness of God. And so it is with Jesus. He's saturated with the fullness of God. And so our expectations must get in line with the fact that Jesus is God. With the fact that He is God and we are not God. We're all aware of that, right? He is God. We are not God. And that acknowledgement alone will have a tremendous impact on our expectations. We are not equals with Jesus. We would never say with our words that we are. But in life practice and in our expectations, it's often like a tug of war between Jesus and us. Between His expectations And our expectations. And somehow we believe that in some way we're going to pull him over the line. It's not going to happen. We shouldn't even try. Because he's far above us. He's God. And for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways. And his thoughts higher than our thoughts. Whereas you and I might want to focus on the power of God. What God could do, what God should do, we must also focus on the higher ways and the higher thoughts of Jesus. He knows all things and He knows what is best. Acknowledging that is going to go a long way in helping to alleviate frustration 
When Jesus, with those higher thoughts or higher ways, does not give us what we expect that he could or should. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God. Therefore, he must have a place of primacy in our lives and in all of our expectations. Jesus is God. Command one says, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus, as God, must be first. Second identity statement. Also in verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. This verse does not, this word firstborn doesn't refer to Jesus' physical birth. Neither does it suggest that Jesus is a created being. Jesus is not a created being. He is eternally existent along with the Father and the Spirit. He is the same with them in substance, and He is equal in power and glory. Let's be clear on that. What Paul is doing here, he's just using a word that communicates to his readers in a way that they will understand the idea, once again, of primacy. In the Old Testament, the firstborn holds a place of primacy. The firstborn is just that. The first to be born. That's a place of primacy. The blessing that was so important in the Old Testament normally was given to the firstborn. The firstborn received a much larger portion of the inheritance. The firstborn had the right to rule the family. It was passed from firstborn to firstborn. It's a position of primacy. And so when Paul uses the term firstborn here, all he's doing is pointing us to, once again, the primacy of Christ. Look in verse 17 for the third identity statement. He, Jesus, is before all things, once again, pointing to the primacy of Christ, of everything that is, everything that is. Jesus is ahead of it. He's before it. He's out in front of it. He is first. Nothing is before him. Look at verse 18 for the fourth identity statement. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Once again, a position of primacy. No one in the church above him. No thing, no position, nothing ahead of Christ. He is preeminent in all things. Look in verse 18 for the fifth identity statement. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. See, he has preeminence in his resurrection in this respect, that he was the first who rose from death to immortality. Jesus was the first who rose from death toward to immortality. See, Jesus raised Lazarus, but Lazarus died again. Jesus raised the, the son of the widow of Nain, but he died again. But here's the good news. Jesus rose to die no more. You believe that? And it's only because of him that any of us here in this room will rise to life again. Do you believe that? I love the story that Matthew tells. In chapter 27, after Jesus' resurrection, we have this interesting verse After Jesus' resurrection, the tombs also were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Please imagine 
story. These saints from the Old Testament, those who actually believed in the things unseen, they had rightly placed their faith in the Messiah who was to come. And how good it is of God in this unique moment in history to allow the dead to be resurrected, to live again, just as was promised, just when Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, was also resurrected. Because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, we have hope and living again, hope and living forever because of Jesus. Is that good news? And only Jesus can do that for us. Only Jesus can do that for us. Again, the promise of Christ He must be preeminent. So let's just review the words. Jesus is God, verse 15, primacy. Jesus is the firstborn, verse 15, primacy. Jesus is before all things, verse 17, primacy. Jesus is the head, verse 18, primacy. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, verse 18, primacy. And so it's clear here, Jesus is first, right? First, 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 five times. So... On this Advent expectation Sunday, we must think about our expectations in light of who Jesus is. And we have seen that who he is is first. What then can you expect? What can I expect in our lives when Jesus is not first? What can you expect when you don't? Hold this identity of Jesus as first, always in your view. I'm going to answer those questions with four illustrations from Scripture. So I hope you still have your Bible out. If you do, please turn in the Old Testament, near the very end of the Old Testament, to the book of Haggai. You're going to find that in the Pew Bible on page 793. Page 793. If you're not using the Pew Bible, just look toward the very end of the Old Testament and you're going to find Haggai chapter 1. Now look in verse 3 of chapter 1. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house lies in ruins? Now therefore says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for, or expected, much. And behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew. And the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. See, for the people 
of God who had returned to Jerusalem after decades of exile in Babylon, putting God first in their lives, giving Him that position of primacy meant that the first thing they would do would be to rebuild His temple because the temple was God's visible dwelling place on earth. The temple demonstrated to God's people and to all the people of the world the unique, privileged relationship that the people had with the one and only true and God, living God and the relationship that God had with them. To use God's own words, they were His treasured possession. But God did not have primacy in their lives. His temple that had been destroyed, still lay in ruins, while the people built elaborate houses for themselves. We can guess what will happen to people's expectations when they do not put God first. It's no surprise. All of their expectations were disappointed. They worked hard, planted much, harvested little. They ate They had food to eat and expected that food would satisfy them, but it didn't satisfy them no matter how much they ate. The same with what they drank. They had clothes, but the clothes didn't keep them warm. They earned money. They earned money, but it was like they put in bags with holes. They brought it home. God blew it away. They expected much and got little. They expected much and got little. Because God was not first in their lives. The point is that the prosperity that the people had did not do for them what they expected it would do. Without God first, apart from right relationship with Him, they would not find satisfaction and their expectations would be frustrated. It's a reminder to you and to me That the satisfaction we expect will not be realized if Christ is not first in our lives. And that's just the way it is. What we think will satisfy us will not if Christ is not first. And when we look at what we have, and we say to ourselves, why doesn't this satisfy me? I was sure it would but it doesn't. It's not what I expected. See, that's a God moment for all of us. An opportunity to evaluate whether Christ has a place of primacy and preeminence in our lives. It's an opportunity for all of us to to repent of putting other things or other people before Christ. It's an opportunity for us to reorient our lives so that in all things, He is first, preeminent. Let's move to the second example. The Apostle Peter. Poor Peter. (laughs) He's always an illustration, isn't he? Usually of not so good things. But in this instance, Peter had the right profession, but the wrong expectation. The right profession, but the wrong expectations. That should resonate very well with all of us. You know, because we profess right things, don't we? We profess right things about God, about Christ, about His Word with our lips. But we often expect wrong things. You know what happened to Peter. He made the right profession. He acknowledged 
to Jesus before the other disciples, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Amen. Right profession. After that profession, Jesus began to teach the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. He must be killed. And on the third day, he must be raised. But Peter, being Peter, took Jesus aside and rebuked him and said, Far be it from you, Lord, this, your will and your way, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Look how easy it is. Look how easy it is to have the right profession and the wrong expectation. Peter did not expect that his profession, what he said with his lips, should actually impact his expectations. In spite of who he knew Jesus to be, Peter still wanted to have Peter's way. In his expectation, Messiah doesn't die. It's not the way it goes, Jesus. Let's go back to the drawing board and try again. Peter expected that the Christ, the Messiah, to serve the primacy of Peter's purpose instead of the other way around. Still first in Peter's heart, still first in his mind was his will and his way. And Jesus' will and way didn't jibe with Peter's expectation, and so there was conflict. And Peter is called by Jesus, Satan, indicating that what's really going on here is that the enemy, Satan, is attempting to thwart Jesus' plan through the instrumentality of Peter. And that's a sobering thought, isn't it? One who loved Jesus like Peter did, being used by Satan. Now look in verse 21 of Colossians 1. We read there, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In light of this, why is Jesus not first? Why is he not preeminent in the lives of those he has reconciled to God at the price of his own blood? Why is he not first? The answer we come up with will be very revealing. And when those who have been reconciled and redeemed, those who will one day stand right beside the Redeemer, Jesus, who will take us, and present us to God and say, here is the Holy One. Here is the blameless one. Here is the one who is above reproach. And he's talking about us because of what he has done for us. Why then? We must ask ourselves, must one like this not have the primacy in our lives? Why must he not be first place? The answer that we come up with would be very revealing. Because it will show us the source of the inspiration in our lives that puts Jesus second. Something inspires us to do that. To put him in any place 
other than first place. And we have to face it boldly and harshly as Jesus does here when he calls Peter Satan. It's sin. And the father of all sin is Satan himself. So do not be surprised when expectations are not met when Jesus is not first. Jesus said, Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. Are we? These things in Colossians 1, these definitely are the things of God. Some of the deepest, most profound, and most beautiful in all Scripture. Surely these truths are preeminently the things of God. If we don't keep them in our mind, all the things we've read about who Jesus is, how can we expect to fare any differently than did Peter? Let's go to the third example. The upper room. You and I can't have a blank slate when it comes to the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We can only see Jesus after the cross. And we know who he is and what he came to do and how he did it. So we can't understand what he did before the cross. We only see the foot washing as an act of beauty, servant-hearted devotion from a a servant-hearted, loving Savior. And so we are moved, we are so moved that Jesus would do something so beautiful for us. But that's not how the disciples perceived it because they could only understand Jesus before the cross. And so they had different expectations. And we have plenty of, ex- plenty of clues about what those expectations were. The disciples expected a political kingdom. Jesus had already told them this. Truly I say to you, in the new world, right, new world order, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. That's good news for the disciples. They thought this was going to be an earthly kingdom. And so they came up with their expectations accordingly. Hey, best friends of the guy who's going to be king? Hey, we struck the mother load. James and John came with mama, brought their mama with them. The mama went to Jesus and Jesus asked her what she wanted. And she said, well, say to these two sons of mine, But one of them will sit on your right hand and one will sit on your left hand when you come into your kingdom. They wanted an earthly kingdom and the power and the prestige of it. Even after Jesus was resurrected. Even when Jesus was appearing to the disciples in his resurrected body in Acts chapter 1. They still say to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Still, they wanted an earthly political kingdom. They had expectations based not on who Jesus was, but on who they wanted him to be, an earthly political king. So, I wonder if they were not disgusted by Jesus' display in the upper room. Foot washing. They had never seen such a thing done by someone of Jesus' stature, and they did not want to see it done by the one who is supposed to be the Messiah washing feet. 
It wasn't beautiful to them, I don't believe. It was disappointing. What kind of leader would degrade himself like this? Where's the dignity of his office? I wonder if that's not why Peter said to Jesus when he came to his feet, you shall never wash my feet. I wonder if Judas was also disgusted that the person he was following to be king would humiliate himself like that. It's not what he expected. Their expectations were wrong because they would not see Jesus for who he is. Another example. Later that night, the Garden of Gethsemane. I think in the garden, Peter and Judas were on the same page. I cannot know this for certain. I can only speculate like many others before me have. That perhaps Judas betrayed Jesus in order to force Jesus to be who Judas expected he should be. To be who Judas believed he had the power to be. So maybe the foot washing was the last straw. Enough of this. Be the Messiah, I expect. And so in the garden, when Judas comes to Jesus and identifies him to the legion of Roman officers with a kiss, perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps Judas then steps back thinking, watch what's going to happen now. And perhaps Judas believed that Jesus would defy them and defeat them. I don't know. All I do know is that that was the plan. It all fell apart because Jesus didn't fight. Peter did. Peter drew his sword and cut off the ear of the uh, the, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its place. There was to be no fight, not on this night. Jesus continued, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. 12 legions of angels against one legion of Roman officers. Yes. Yes, Jesus. We know that you can. Now do it. But Jesus did not. And here's why. Jesus continues. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? It must be so. God's will must be done first. Foremost. Promacy. It must have promacy even when God's will conflicts with our expectations. Now let's get back to Colossians 1. Look in verse 23 and I'll close with this. Because we have this charge in verse 23 from the Apostle Paul. Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And there's our commission. Continue in faith. The faith that Jesus is all Paul says he is in these verses. Don't give up on that faith. Jesus is first. Failed expectations. Make us want to give up. Disappointment with Jesus makes us want to give up. Don't give up. Instead, let faith help you rearrange. Rearrange so that Jesus is preeminent in your life. And not you yourself. 
rearranged so that His will is preeminent in your life and not your will and not your way, then you and I together, we will have right expectations. And those expectations will be fulfilled and will give you satisfaction, peace, joy, and hope because they are founded rightly on who Jesus is. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we truly, truly need you to open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see you. Lord, we need to see you for who you are and not for who we want you to be. Lord, who we want you to be could never be as beautiful as who you already are. Lord, it's the smallness of our thinking and the pettiness of our own hearts that would desire to remake you in our image and base our expectations upon that. Lord, so beneath who you've called us to be and enabled and empowered us to be through your spirit. So we pray, Lord, that we would take this commission to remain steadfast, stable, not shifting, keeping our eyes focused on who you are, Lord Jesus. Show us clearly who that is so that we might have right expectations in our lives. And Lord, the beauty that that will bring and the hope and the joy to our lives when those expectations are realized and satisfied because they're based on who you are, Lord. What beauty and glory in our lives and in this world. Oh, Lord, help us to expect right things based on who you really are. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.